Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to Sports in the Making. I'm your host, Don Cardona. I'd like to give you an update on this podcast, as well as give some context as to how I'd planned on releasing various episodes. Originally, my plan was to release them based on the sports calendar to give my listeners an idea of what goes into it before the event happens. The sports calendar is shot, but there is still some great information my guests share with me on what they do and how they've made an impact on the sports they cover. Some of the episodes were recorded weeks ago, and we obviously did not foresee anything that has happened, and thus we did not discuss any of the current events. I do still plan to release these episodes and more going forward as best I can, and I hope they can help pass any downtime you may have during this bizarre situation. I also want to mention that many of the people who work in sports are freelance or self-employed, and they will be impacted financially by the cancellation of thousands of sporting events around the world. For the networks that have made the decision to help them out over the next couple of months, I thank you. I hope you and your family stay safe and healthy in the weeks and months ahead. I also hope that when the sports industry reboots, it helps give everyone a new perspective on how important sports is in taking our minds off of catastrophic events, and I hope you enjoy these upcoming episodes. Building relationships in any industry can help further a career or make connections you might not expect. My guest on this episode has nurtured relationships to work on some of the top events in sports, and through those relationships, he's been in unique positions to help lead the purchase of sports franchises in the NHL. We'll find out how all that came about for him next on Sports in the Making. Thank you for taking time out of your lives to listen to Sports in the Making, a podcast looking at the behind the scenes of sports and sports broadcasting, talking with the people who make it happen and how sports comes together. I'm your host, Don Cardona, and this is episode 11 and an introduction to episode 12. My guest on this episode has worked at the top level of sports broadcasting as a producer on many of the high level sporting events broadcast on a variety of networks. He's either on the field or in the broadcast booth with some of the best reporters and announcers in the business. In fact, you may at times see him sneak into a camera shot during the on-field scrum when reporters and cameras try to get the post-game interviews on some of these events. He's also been very active in working with ownership groups to purchase National Hockey League franchises and had an integral part of building PNC Park in Pittsburgh, home of the Pittsburgh Pirates. His name is Ben Boma, and we'll talk about all of that, women in sports, and how building relationships is an important part of making things happen in sports. Ben and I talk about a lot of interesting topics, so I've made the executive decision to split our conversation into two parts. In part one, we'll talk about producing broadcast sports with Fox, ESPN, NBC, and others. And part two offers his experiences with management consulting, as well as women in sports broadcasting. Before we get started, here's a clip from episode two. Some guys reached out to me and they said, look, you know, I, I got some people, you know, they've got some money, they're interested. They said, what can you find out? And I said, well, let me reach out to the league and kind of see who's available. Now, at the time, they were they were more interested in trying to buy the Chicago Blackhawks than they were anything else. And I said, guys, Blackhawks aren't available. Like, just so you know, I, I, I mean, yeah, you could want them, but, you know, they're probably not for sale. I mean, we all know that everything's for sale, but I'm, I'm doubting the words family is going to going to sell the team. All right, I hope you take time to listen to episode 13, which is part two, where we talk about what goes into making a deal to buy a sports franchise, women in sports, and a few other things in there as well. All right, on to part one with my friend and colleague, Ben Boma. 
All right, I'm with Ben Boma, who is one of those people that in my career I always saw because we were always on the same events. I kind of knew what he did on the field and wherever we needed to be for media, but I, I never really got to know truly what he did. So thank you for joining me today, Ben. It's been a long time. The last time we caught up was about eight years ago when I was at ESPN. So welcome to the show and tell me, what is it that you do? What's your title? <laughs> Uh, well, is this an hour podcast or a three hour <laughs> podcast? Uh, no, Don, appreciate you having me on and, and your interest in what I've done and, and what I'm involved in. You know, I get that question all the time is that what is it you do? And I think everybody growing up, like whether it's high school or college or your first years in business, like people ask you, you know, what's your title or what's your title going to be? And I honestly like the fact that people don't know exactly what I do, because one of the things I've been able to build up in my career is freedom. So that I can be a producer, I can be a statistician, I can be a connector, I can be an entrepreneur, I can be a CEO. Um, I've been able to carve out a unique niche in this business that allows me to be my boss, work some amazing things, but also be involved in some amazing projects because I'm not just tied down to, oh, he's a consultant or he's an accountant or, you know, I think everybody in their career should aspire to that. Um, You know, hey, there are some people like to go nine to five and have a title on their business card and that's it. And then they're done, but I'm not wired that way. I never have been. Um, and so I've been very, very fortunate to take the opportunities I've had in this industry and build my own career out of it. So I, I again, I'm not giving you a title, but there's plenty of things we'll talk about uh, in the next yeah, hour absolutely. about the things that I've done. Well, and, and for the sake of, of this interview and just to structure it a little bit, because we can go in many different directions. Yep. I know you as a producer and and the word producer in this sports industry can take many different forms but i would understand you as being a field producer primarily but i'm sure it's much more encompassing than that so let's start there and tell people what you've done on network sports with espn and nbc and fox and all those other networks sure my my my, like a lot of people i think you enter into a world after college that probably had nothing to do with what your desire was when you entered college. I actually went to Penn State at the age of 17 to uh, go into their aerospace engineering program. I wanted to build rockets. I wanted to fly planes. That was my kind of mindset and what I had actually worked hard to do in college. I'm sorry, in high school, just to prepare, because at Penn State, it was a five-year program from the moment you got there. And I was always ahead of my age as far as schooling and athletics. Um, I was fortunate to be a an all new England football player and an all new England hockey player. But because my academics were actually ahead of the curve, I was ready to graduate and I just turned 17. So I went to Penn state, started in their aerospace engineering program. And shortly after the January break of our hockey season that year, we were playing a game and I got kneed above my knee in the game. And I had to be on crutches for about four or five days. My leg had swelled up and my eight o'clock engineering courses were on the other side of campus. And anybody's ever been to Penn state, like it's not a three block campus. <laughs> and so the uh, incentive to get out of bed at around 7am and then hobble all the way across campus in January weather in central Pennsylvania was probably the changing point in my career because it was like, you know, I could do this. I could be a great aerospace engineer. I'm not just sure if I want to do it. And when you're a puppy and bright eyed at the age of 17, you remember that you're at a university. And have the opportunity to have all these things in front of you and different avenues to take. So that route took me more into the sports world from, and we can get back to that later, but from the TV side, I kind of fell into it. When I was with the Washington Capitals in the uh, early 90s, 
Kenny Albert, the son of Marv Albert, he was there at the same time. And in the 1993-94 season, the NHL lockout was impending. But it was also the same year that Fox Sports had bought the NFL rights away from CBS. And I remember we would go to the office every day for the Washington Capitals, not knowing when the season was going to happen. So we'd be doing crossword puzzles and making long distance phone calls and just killing time until we knew the league was going to start back up. And anybody knows hockey, we didn't start till January. But that summer, Kenny Albert was hired along with Joe Buck and uh, Tom Brenneman, the three sons of three very famous broadcasters in Marv Albert and uh, Jack Buck and Marty Brenneman. Fox Sports hired a younger generation of broadcasters to fill in the rest of their roster. They actually had John Madden and, and Pat Summerall as their lead crew and Dick Stockton and, and those guys there. But they needed a new generation. So Kenny Albert gets the job. And he calls me one day because we're really close. And he says, hey, what are you doing? And I said, well, we're doing long distance phone calls and crossword puzzles in the office. And he goes, <laughs> would, would you want to do the games with me? And I'm like, absolutely. So since 1994, I've worked in the booth with Kenny Albert doing the NFL. So it's 26 seasons of the NFL. Never thinking when I took that offer from Kenny that it would lead to a TV career because for us, it was our fall hobby waiting for the you know the NHL season to start because at the time Kenny was the broadcaster for the Washington Capitals. That fall also Fox Sports ended up buying the NHL rights. Hmm. So all of a sudden within six months, Fox Sports owned the NFL rights and the NFC package and had bought the NHL rights. And Fox had nobody who had done their new hockey. So all of a sudden Kenny and I go from you know, kind of these low guys in the totem pole working for the Washington Capitals to now doing national broadcasts for both the NFL and the NHL. And you knowing this industry is once you start doing good jobs for people, they want to keep you around and hire you. So that's kind of how I got into this business. And then when I finished and kind of had my fill of working with the Washington Capitals, I went on to the Pittsburgh Pirates where I had interned for a couple of years and was their PR person. And while we were there, we started work on the new ballpark, which is now PNC Park, one of the best ballparks in the country. And at the end of it, I kind of got tired of it. I mean, it's a very demanding job. And they came to me and said, hey, uh, would you want to produce Sunday Night Baseball as a sideline reporter? Because at that time, it had always been John Miller and Joe Morgan, but mm -hmm. the folks at ESPN wanted to add a sideline feature to it. And I said, you know what, that's, you know, that's not a bad idea, because having done hockey with ESPN and knowing the people there, they know my, my acumen with baseball. And they're like, He'd be a good fit. So I kind of fell into that role working with Sam Ryan, who was kind of the first sideline reporter on Sunday Night Baseball. And this would have been in the 2005 season, I think. And just like everything else, once you do a good job, it just leads to more and more and more. So, you know, over the last 15 years, I've really created a kind of a side television business freelancing for uh, all the major outlets. I do the NHL on NBC. I do the NFL on Fox. I do uh, uh, did a lot of stuff for Turner, producing their baseball and basketball. Just did two years of the NFL for Amazon, the Olympics for NBC, so on and so forth. So, like I said, if I was 17 and you said, hey, 30 years from now, do you think you'd have this on your resume? I'd say, heck no. But, um, you know, that's kind of where you and I crossed paths when I was a, a sideline producer for ESPN. As a field producer, tell me what kinds of announcers you worked with and then what your responsibilities were while you were doing those events. Somewhere in the mid-2000s is when the sideline and the field and kind of the extra access in both college sports and pro sports really kind of took off. 
you know, we all grew up in a world where it was, hey, there's the two guys in the booth. And even if you did have a field reporter or a silent reporter, it was somebody like either Joe Namath on the sideline or just, you know, somebody of Hall of Fame stature who was just there and, and knew people. But then, and, and you remember the days from ESPN, it really morphed into actual reporting and covering mm-hmm. stories and, and looking into second and third layers of the players and the personalities and the coaches and the storylines and, you know, really providing more than just, hey, this guy rolled his ankle. We're not sure he's going to come back in the second half. I give credit to ESPN for really taking that role in all their sports to another level. And it created a niche, not just at ESPN, but for everywhere else. Like if ESPN was doing well, well, now Fox wants to do it and, and CBS wants to do it. No, you just you had to provide a better viewpoint and a better uh, access to the viewer because stuff is going on in real time. And it, it just provided more information and more storylines to the viewer. So I worked with so many people at ESPN that they had faith in me that when they wanted to hire a new talent who had never done it before, they would bring me in to work with them one-on-one just to say, hey, these are the type of questions you need to answer. We, we know you were a good soccer player or a good gymnast or a good baseball player or a good basketball player, but the fans at home want to know certain things. So these are the types of questions you need to ask. And here's what your attitude needs to be. And you have to be you know, part knowledgeable, part reporter, part question answer, part interviewer, and really do things on the fly as well. Because we weren't taping these things. They were on live television. Right. So it really created a unique niche, which now you see in every sports broadcast that exists. And so credit to ESPN for really turning that role into something unique back then that now we just find is a staple kind of 15 years later. There's a lot of fans, I would guess, that believe that the reporter is the only one coming up with the storylines or the reports and things of that nature. And a lot of times they are, but what is the aspect of what you're there for uh, as well? You need to get them to position where they need to be and other things like that. What, where do you come into that whole picture? So it's, you know, it starts obviously several days before the event, you know, let's say you were doing a baseball game, you know, you got to be there kind of on the Friday or the Saturday of a series, see how the games develop maybe know who your starting pitchers are who are coming up or same thing in football, you know, who are the main stories, the starting quarterbacks, the storylines from the week before. So, and, and you remember your producing days, like the, the way I explain to people who are on the outside, what doing a live event is, is you're studying for an exam and that exam can be a myriad of questions or directions within that three hours that you're doing the event, but you have to be prepared for every Avenue that that takes. So, it happens in the truck. It happens in the booth. It happens on the field where, you know, what are all the storylines that we want to make sure that we're prepared for? And so you can come up with anywhere from eight to 12 to 20 great storylines ready to go. You kind of see where the game takes you or see where, you know, certain things that you prepared for, when they follow that storyline or they kind of veer from that storyline, because that can be a story in itself. And then you're also reacting to what's going on in the game itself. You know, is a guy throwing a no hitter? Is a guy thrown for 500 yards? Uh, did this guy just score four touchdowns? Geez, what do we have to ask them at halftime? So there's a unique mixture of pre-prep and things that you can predict and things that you can prepare for. But you have to combine that with what's actually happening in the game because it can go a million different ways on any play or any pitch or, or any face-off. So yeah. it's a knowledge base. You have to know the sport. You have to know the people. You have to have relationships with the teams, the leagues, the TV people so that, hey, if something big does happen, you know, say a guy hits four home runs. Hey, we need to talk to that guy right away after the game. So you're dealing with the team to set that up. 
you're getting back to Bristol or you're getting back to Stanford and saying, look, you know, do we need to do a sit down with this guy right away? Where does this fit in the news cycle? It's a mixture of a lot of unique things that you hope at the end of the three hours, you got an A plus on the exam. Now, you know, there's never been in the history of, of sports broadcasting a perfect show, but you hope that you somewhere covered everything you needed to do and then some in that three hour window to justify your existence. Wait, wait, you've never had a perfect show? I, I thought no, uh, I nobody thought I was has. Only, you know so that. I must be the only one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's been a lot of A's. There's never been an A <laughs> in the history of sports broadcasts. Because, you know, at the end of it, you, you will always look back and, and look, players and coaches do the same thing. I'm sure when, uh, like, the New England Patriots beat somebody 47 to 7, they see something on film they didn't like. Oh, yeah. And it's the same thing with us with broadcasts. We never, ever, if we're having a beer after a game, we never talk about, well, that's the best broadcast ever. Boy, did we get everything right. We will always talk about either the things we missed or we didn't like. It's just I think it comes uh, with the the nature of perfectionism. So, yeah. you know, we, we like to be perfect on TV, but we know, and most of the people at home don't know the difference, but we do because, you know, we've been working hard at it all week. What kinds of relationships are you able to build with your sideline reporters or even booth announcers that you work with? It is 1,000% trust. It is working with somebody, knowing they have faith in you, especially in the booth is a little different than, than the sideline reporting because you can prepare a little bit more with the sideline reporting and the story and you kind of have to wait for the truck to come to you or the studio to come to you and you have time to prepare. But the trust that that I've built with some of the guys that I work in the booth and, you know, some of the best names in the business with Doc Emmerich and Kenny Albert, and Steve Levy, Mike Tirico, Sean McDonough, on and on and on. There has to be 1000 percent trust because they're looking at you to be perfect. I'm looking at them to be perfect because anybody at home, even the average fan can pick out a big mistake. And our goal is to go through a whole broadcast, not only getting zero mistakes, but our goal is to make you say wow to something, like provide you an, a tidbit or a highlight or a stat or a nugget or something where you go, wow, I didn't know that. And so the trust between myself and the talent, the trust and the research and the preparation and the trust that if I hand Doc Emmerich or Kenny Albert something in a split second and they're saying it, it's not Ron Burgundy, you know, talking about San Diego, it's the play-by-player, the talent does not have time to edit and look at it. They read it. And yeah. so over the years, you have to build up that trust that knowing, look, if I'm giving you something, go with it. And I'm fortunate in that nature that I've built up some great relationships with people because it's not what happens in the average flow of the game. It's being prepared for that moment in time where you see something unique or you see something historical that you're you're documenting it and you're putting it in the context. You know, those are the those are the moments where the really good people in this business, that's why they earn their money. And I've been very fortunate to to be able to part a lot of those events. You've worked with the best in the business. What what are some of the qualities that they have that that makes them get to that level and and have that ability to effortlessly let this information flow so that the fans learn something? Right. They, I think one is experience. You know, everybody, just like every major leaguer, like Cal Ripken played his first game at one time, right? right. Um, you know, Tiger Woods swung his first club at one time. So, but over time, over experience, you learn context, you learn uh, how to deal in the moment, you learn confidence. The, the one thing that I will tell 
especially college students who want to get in this, it's preparation. You know, it's like, we're, we, in, especially in the sports world, we have the fortune to watch great athletes every day, right? Right. But what you don't get to see is how much work they put in. You know, you know, one of the, the people always just say that, you know, Wayne Gretzky was, you know, so talented, but they never watched him in practice to watch how hard he worked. And that all of the best players in the world that he played with and against, he outworked them. The same can be true of Kenny Albert and Doc Emmerich and Mike Tirico and some of the best because the preparation that they put into every broadcast, it doesn't matter if they're doing Olympic Tilly Winks, Stanley Cup Finals or the Super Bowl, the same amount of preparation goes into it. And fans at home don't see that. You know, I, I'm sure you tell people the same thing. Come to a TV truck once and watch how this unfolds or come to a booth and watch what goes on behind the scenes because the amount of communication and preparation and discussion between us all before something goes out on the air is unbelievable. So you have to build up that trust combined with the preparation. And then when the moment happens, knowing you, we all have the confidence and trust each other that we're going to bring the best moment at the best time. So it's memorable. You know, some of the worst bloopers you see are the moments where people aren't prepared and they, and they make such huge gaffes and then millions of people see it. I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to ask, have you been in a situation where there has been a blunder and then what happens to kind of salvage that whole situation? Well, you know, one of them interestingly happened in the 2010 Stanley Cup final. You had Chicago and Philadelphia and Chicago had not won a Stanley Cup since 1961. They have the chance to win in Philadelphia and it goes to overtime. Philly comes back. It's a great game. And Patrick Kane scores one of the most famous goals in NHL history. Now, anybody remembers it. He shot the puck in from about two feet above the Flyers goal line. It snuck in between the goaltender's pad and disappeared into the, the padding of the net on the far side in a split second. Patrick Kane was probably the, the only person in the building saw it go in the net. Now, if you think about it, this is a game-winning Stanley Cup clinching goal for a city that hadn't won a Stanley Cup in, you know, 39 years mm -hmm. and nobody saw it go in the net those are the moments as a broadcaster and as a broadcastee that you prepare for because you're like a game winning a cup clinching goal in overtime that's one of the best things that happens in sports well the puck goes in the net and nobody knows what happens and you see Patrick Kane celebrate but nobody the referee isn't pointing we can't see the puck the players are reacting like what the hell just happened <laughs> and it took this you know it, it's an iconic moment obviously but it sucks the life out of the moment because yeah. as prepared as everybody is, it just happened. It's like, you know, how do you recover from it? How do you say, Oh geez, the, the puck goes in the net, the Chicago Blackhawks won the Stanley cup. So even some of the craziest things can happen in sports to deflate all those years of preparation and context and, and trust the things we just talked about, because Hey, stuff happens. <laughs> it's right. like, don't prepare for it. And it just happened. So, Still, you have the best people in the truck and you have the best people in the booth that can overcome it. But you still you go, oh, my gosh, did that just happen? <laughs> like, you know, you, you're, you wish you were in a bar with the people in Chicago because they would have been like, wait, did we win? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. it, it's a frustrating moment. But again, the best people in the world can also make up for those mistakes and cover it up pretty fast. And we did. So, you know, that's also a credit to, to people's preparation and, and context. So some of the, the events that you've worked on, two World Series, 14 Stanley Cup Finals, five Winter Olympic Hockey Tournaments, two World Cups of Hockey, 11 MLB League Championship Series, 15 MLB Division Series, two World Baseball Classics, 
13 BCS championships, 10 NFL playoff games, 4 NBA playoff series, 28 combined MLB All-Star games, NHL All-Star games and NFL Pro Bowls, as well as 21 NHL Winter Classic and Stadium Series games, and also the producer on the past 15 MLB Home Run Derbies on ESPN. And I had to read that directly from your bio because I wouldn't have been able to do that myself. <laughs> of all those events, and I think you, you'd mentioned it was 3,200 events with 300 venues. Of all of those events, is there one that you have more of a, an emotional connection with? Yeah, there, there are a couple that... Um... You know, as a, growing up in Boston, and anybody who's a New Englander obviously suffered with the Red Sox for decades. Being able to be at Bush Stadium when they won the World Series was amazing. You know, I, I try in all these years. You try, you, you you have to learn to become unbiased. But that there was an interesting thing. I was on the field before the game, and at the time, Dale Swaim was the third base coach for the Red Sox, and Dale and I had been together in baseball for a long time. One of my closest friends. And it's very rare that when you go to a venue that you know history is going to happen. Mm. You, can, you can use that term a lot. Like, obviously, if you go to a Super Bowl, you know something is going to happen. But this was unique because you, 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 the Red Sox were up three games to none. Half of New England was already traveling to Missouri. You know, at that point, the Cardinals knew they had no chance because, obviously, with the Red Sox beating the Yankees four straight and now up 3 nothing, like – even Tony La Russa is sitting in his manager's office going like, we got no chance. Like the baseball <laughs> gods are against us. Just let this end tonight. Right. So we're on the field before the game. And I remember saying to Dale, how, how rare it is that before a sporting event, you know, you're going to see history tonight. So if you went into it with that mindset, watching that whole night unfold was just chilling because again, you're, you're watching 86 years of history vaporize finally for the fans of new England. And just you're you're almost able to enjoy it differently. It wasn't like something surprise happened, and you know the Red Sox won in overtime on a goal. Like you could watch that whole game knowing what the result was going to be, and I think they scored in the first inning. And from that part, it was just a party. Like most people don't know about the behind the scenes of that game, but Cardinal fans in general are just very Midwest generous people and love their baseball. And a lot of the Cardinal fans started leaving Bush Stadium at like the sixth or seventh inning. Why? And they were handing, well, because, because again, they had won, but what they were doing is like, one, we don't want to see another team win a World Series at our stadium. Uh, but what they were doing was handing their tickets to Red Sox oh, fans who were awesome. outside and saying, go in. And the, and the Bush Stadium people and the Cardinals people let them in. And it was amazing. So you saw the, like the stadium kind of decompress in the middle innings. And then it started filling up. And then by the eighth inning, the entire lower bowl around home plate was Red Sox fans chanting, let's go Red Sox. And it was just an amazing, it was such a combination of unique things for that to happen. It happening in the right city with the right baseball fans. And then saying, look, you suffered long enough. Enjoy it. You know, the stadium letting people in. And so it was just this cosmic celebration. That again, I I it, I don't think it translated to TV again because I think the shots on Fox were all the bars in Boston and the streets. Yeah. Like you knew it was going to be a big celebration, but it really didn't document what was going on in the stadium. And to see that happen was just chilling. And the other big one that that was so unique and so tremendous to be a part of on many levels was the 2010 gold medal hockey game in Vancouver between the U.S. and Canada. Mm -hmm. To be in Canada to 
see those two teams play each other and the buildup and the drama and Doc to my right calling the game and all of that. It was just another thing where you knew where you were. You were going to see something historic. Obviously, I was rooting for the U.S. And when the U.S. tied it, it was such a like it was such an incredible deflating feeling in, in, in a Canadian venue. And then for Canada to win in overtime and the partying. And it was just there are so few events where you get to see the genuineness of it anymore that those two stand out to me. You know, I, I always remember the ones that just feel right. Yeah. And those were two that, that just felt right when you were there. Well, it's interesting that you bring both of those up because the night the Red Sox won that World Series was one of the greatest moments of my life because I was in the hospital with my son who was born on that day. Oh, wow. <laughs> and and so I got to watch the game while watching him sleep and taking care of him. And then with the Vancouver one, my wife's from Vancouver. And so just seeing her celebrate with that one <laughs> was an amazing thing too. A so, huge relief in the household, right? Yeah, on both of them. <laughs> yeah pretty much. Yeah. 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 So with all of those major sports that you've covered, uh, one of the questions that I heard um, somebody talk about recently, I can't remember what media outlet it was on. I think it was a local Denver station. They were talking about the scrum at the end of a game. What is that like in a big event like that? Because Obviously, you're working on the with the network that has the high priority, the first priority right. to get the interview. But everybody rushes out there and expect to talk to them. What's what's that like? If you could describe well, what that again, is. it's it's organized chaos. A lot of there's a lot of preparation that actually goes into that, which people don't notice. I mean, I usually they will see, you know, a team celebrating and then a couple of shots, and then you hear the play by play go, okay, let's send it down to Craig Sager or whoever's down with, you know, the player of the game or the MVP, whatever. So much goes into the preparation of that because you have to anticipate almost kind of every pitch or every play where a game could go. <laughs> if, if you want to rewind a little bit back when I was doing PR for, for the Pittsburgh Pirates, we always seem to jinx ourselves in the night thing because you just assume, okay, I've got the game notes done. Here's what we're going to have downstairs. And so I'm starting to prepare for the next day. And all of a sudden, either the other team hits a three-run homer, it's tied, <laughs> or or something crazy happens, and all the work you did all day with the game notes goes out the window. It's a you're kind of taking the whole thing, kind of okay. What's the big picture? Is this a series-ending thing? Is this a game-ending thing? Is this a championship-ending thing? You know, where is this kind of on-the-field stuff taking us? So, and each sport's different. You know, uh, a football winning a, a bowl game is different than a World Series, which is different than a a Stanley cup series, like they all have to be unique in how you're preparing for it. But it's a, it's a fortune when you're the rights holder that you can control the moment you're going to get the first interview and the second interview and nobody else can do any interviews with anybody till we're done. But once that last out or the, or, you know, the, the, the last play happens, the chaos that ensues to get everything organized, getting cameras in place and working with the PR people and, and rounding up a guy who just, you know, either made the play of the game or is the MVP or whatever, or just won a championship, getting those guys wrangled. It's like herding cats yep. and trying to get that all done in about a 30 second window. Cause I believe it is live television and millions of people kind of want to see the, the, the fallout and the reaction. It's a, it's a moment by moment preparation that can change on a moment's notice. I can't remember how many games were, you know, Oh geez, they're down by three and bang tying home run and now we're going to extra innings or a game winning field. Like you just have to shift on the fly, but stay within a structure that you've already prepared for. And then as soon as it happens, it's like, go get it done. 
it's something I've always taken pride in because I've been on all sides of it. I've worked with the league, I've worked with TV, and I've worked for teams. And I think that was a benefit knowing what everybody's needs are in the moment. But man, when it happens, it is chaos. <laughs> I'm, I'm proud of some of the interviews and things I've been able to wrangle. But if people at home knew the stress and the sweating and the preparation to get that interview, it, I think they'd appreciate it a little bit more. And I've never envied anybody in your position being inside the truck and making sure they're trying to be in that right spot because we're in the truck trying to anticipate that as well. And that game tying home run, you're like, oh man, now I got to replan this. But, that, but that's right. the fun part of, of TV. Right, because it, you've been handed a new story. I yeah. think, you know, it's, it's funny. When you do enough games and you see a lot of the same things over time, you know, obviously that's where we talk about context and we talk about preparation. And you sometimes get bored because you're like, man, I'd really like to get out of here and get to the hotel and have a beer and then catch my flight in the morning. But what you forget is, and it's it's one of the reasons like people ask me, like, why do you still do it? And I said, well, every game and every event you do starts 0-0. Zero, zero. You don't know where it's going to go. I mean, the odds are it'll probably be an average baseball game and then 5-2 to two and get nothing. But you may be in the ninth inning and the guy may have a perfect game or, or a guy may have five goals like Mika Zibanejad did last night for the Rangers or a guy may rush for 300 yards and seven minutes somewhere. You don't know. And I think that's the attraction of live sports. You know, it's a blank slate. You know, people bet on it because they're trying to predict what the outcome might be. But the unique thing about covering and going to games is everything starts zero zero, and you just don't know where that path is going to take you. So, when at the end of a game you get handed the story, you got to make the most of it because you, you don't know whether you're documenting history. You don't know if you're going to see something or do something that never is going to happen again. And I think the more you do it, you more appreciate that because the the moments between those are so far between that when you have the opportunity to do one or produce one or be a part of one, it's, it's worthwhile. Just a reminder that I'm talking with Ben Boma. You would likely see him on most major events from the cameras that are covering everything. I'm, I'm sure you s somehow sneak into the, the actual interview camera <laughs> shots shot just because of a, time, yeah. yeah from the camera guy being bumped and stuff like that. But do you get people that comment, Oh, Hey, I saw you on TV. Yeah. It's, you know, I don't, I tend not to know when I'm on. And then I'll look down at my phone. I'll have like 30 texts. Hey, you must be in, uh, you must be in New York or, oh, you're at that game. You know, that's the, uh, and you know, from being behind the scenes, it's, you know, and a lot of people have asked me, you know, why didn't you get into the broadcasting side? I, I never really had that desire. My mind and my brain works a little differently. Uh, and so I really appreciate kind of the preparation and, and doing things in the moment and the try like, I never had any desire to be on camera, which is weird, you know, as an athlete and as a competitor, it just didn't have it. So it's funny when I do end up on camera or whatever, people know where I am and, or somebody mentions my name, Hey, I heard your name at this game. And then the next day they're like, Oh, how did you get from there to there? It's just, it comes with the territory and comes with the business and certainly is the stuff I plan for, but it's a treat to be on the road with people you like working with and, and, and enjoying their time in the booth. You know, I mean, there are sacrifices as you know, many of my guests have shared with me as well. You are constantly on the road or in a different city or at a different stadium. Just looking at your Facebook posts over the last three months or so, I can't even count how many places you've been with all the credentials that you've shown pictures of. So, <laughs> yeah, so a, what's a typical, I guess, year? What does a typical year look yeah, like? Yeah, you know, you? it's it, now that I, I've kind of, and again, I kind of talked about it in the, in the beginning, it's I've, I've, been, I've been able to create my own niche so that. Fall is mostly football and football bleeds into hockey and then the hockey season will bleed a little bit into the baseball and into the summer. And then guess what? Next thing you know, teams are going to camps and it's football season again. 
So fall has a unique rhythm to it. You know, we start college football now in the third week of August. And then, you know, the NFL starting right thereafter. So my weeks will be a Thursday night NFL game, a Saturday college football game, a Sunday NFL game until hockey starts the first week of October. And then I will do a Wednesday hockey game, Thursday football, Saturday college, Sunday NFL in kind of a rhythm through the fall. And then when football ends, you know, it's it's almost all hockey till the end of the Stanley Cup finals in June. But a new wrinkle this year that's been added is the XFL. Uh, right. Steve Levy, who I do college football with, who's a good friend, you know, said, hey, can you do the XFL with me? I'm like, sure, because Saturdays seems to be the only day off I have in the spring. So right now we're in the midst of both hockey and the XFL overlapping. And then, uh, as you know, you know, our, our relationship kind of began when I was doing baseball almost full time. I've kind of taken the reins back on the baseball side. I missed the people, but I don't miss the grind because, mm-hmm. you know, I did it at different levels when you're with a team. You're doing 200 games a year with 30 spring training games, the season and the playoffs to when we were doing Sunday night baseball and Wednesday night baseball, maybe two or three games a week. Now I just kind of fill in from time to time. I'll do some games and I'll do uh, all the all-star events and things like that. But what it allows me is I get about a a month to six weeks off in the summer. (laughs) So the crazy grind that I kill myself with in certain parts of the year is done for a reason. So I can enjoy some summertime and some things to myself. But yeah, it can be a pretty crazy transportation schedule i would put it in the fall when you're trying to get from a place like starkville mississippi to seattle (laughs) the next day i've had some pretty crazy adventures on the weekend but knock on wood fortunately i never missed one and i've made it to every game on time so hopefully keep that luck uh, lucky streak alive but yeah it 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 does there is no science to what i do you just gotta know how to travel you gotta you know make sure the one thing i always warn people about is when you stay in as many hotels as we do is remember when you go to bed, which side of the hotel room the bathroom is on so that you can avoid the black <laughs> eye, um, which I've done a few times where you get out of bed, forget where you are and run right into the wall. That's just an occupational hazard. Well, what's the craziest travel story you have, if you can re- recall that very quickly? I've had a couple, especially the last couple of years. In college football, especially with our crew, they only assign our games six days in advance. So while I'll know where my NFL game is on Sunday, we might not know where we're going to be on that Saturday until literally five days before. So we find out we are doing a USC-UCLA game in the Rose Bowl, which normally was always, always traditionally a 3.30 Eastern, 12.30 Pacific kickoff for decades. Well, they decide to play that game at 7.45 local, all right, for like the first time ever. And I have to be at Arrowhead Stadium at noon the next day. (laughs) So we had it set up that uh, I had my rental car all the way at the edge of the parking lot. And depending on the score, if it was a blowout, I would try to sneak out earlier. But I bolt out of the Rose Bowl with about 50 seconds to go. I think USC had the game in hand. Sprint to my car, race to LAX for a 110 red eye through Chicago landed in Kansas City, I want to say maybe at 11 a.m., hopped in in the taxi, and the taxi could only get me so close to Arrowhead that I finally said, hey, let me out here. And I had my luggage and my stuff, and I went over the hill to Arrowhead Stadium and walked into the booth just as Kenny Albert and Moose Johnson were rehearsing. Um, (laughs) That is probably the closest I've cut it, but I've had a couple of crazy adventures of – uh, leaving a game in Oklahoma, driving all night to Dallas-Fort Worth so I could catch a flight to Charlotte. You know, 
there's there's a couple crazy ones every year, but that's my doing. That's that is yeah. that's been my choice and my doing. But uh, I always have one a year where I'm like, wow, how did I pull that off? Yeah. <laughs> It took me uh, 24 hours to get from Bristol, Connecticut through Pittsburgh to St. Louis for the uh, MLB All-Star game there that year. I can't remember. Oh, I think geez. it was 20, 2011, I want to say. Yeah, it sounds right. And I was sick on the whole trip, so <laughs> that was miserable. That's where you just go, what am I doing in this business? But yeah, yeah it's, yeah. it's just that those, honestly, like people ask me all the time, I go, well, I said, in your job, you have to commute from home to the office, right? And they're like, yeah. I said, well, that's what I do. This is just my commute. Yeah. It's if you travel and you do it enough, you know what to do and you know the routines and airports and hopefully you get enough status on an airline where it matters and the same thing at the hotels. So you feel like, hey, it's a little worth it, but it's it's definitely part of the education of this business where it's a whole part that you have to learn is the travel to get from these places to places. And not only that, when you get to the stadiums, the you know, where where are the trucks and and, uh, you know, where's the entrance to the locker rooms and how do I get to the press box and where are the teams and so on and so forth. So um, that's all part of it as well. It's yeah. all, it all goes in the kind of the TV handbook. All right. We're going to transition a little bit. And okay. you referenced it earlier about how announcers have to prepare and, you know, so that you have everything right. You kind of threw me a curveball because I didn't realize that you don't just do this, the television side. You have right. this, I want to say business, sports, management consulting type of thing that is at a pretty high level yep. what what is that i think it'd be easiest to come from you and it deals with hockey and the nhl sure well it's a again it's you know some people when they get into their career or their job they just want to skate in their lane and, and do to use a sports reference i guess that's a terrible reference but they just like to do what they like to do there are other different people who chase their dreams or entrepreneurship or or whatever I've always, since my early days in college, I've always wanted to either run a team or own a team, but there are no majors and there's no uh, classes you can take on how to do that. You literally have to kind of get immersed into it to learn really what goes on because this isn't like any other industry in the world and it's constantly changing. And maybe I'm not being fair to other industries that are changing as fast, but this is, you know, sports is invented. You know, sports is about, especially in the professional world, is, is about convincing the consumer to spend their time or money watching something, which at the end of it, they don't really get anything unless they were smart enough to bet on a winner, which isn't really part of the, the deal anyway. But to literally convince somebody to put their family in a car and drive that car to an, uh, a unique location and spend a lot of money and at the end of it, get back in that car, get home and realize you don't really have anything in your hand. So it's all about learning about sports and the perception and, and marketing and all the pieces that if you're not on the field or the ice, you know, what, what, what is the sports world? So I've really had to learn through osmosis when I was with the Pittsburgh pirates in the, uh, in the mid nineties, and we were trying to get PNC park built. That was an incredible learning experience in politics dealing with people at a high level, like how are we going to get this done so the Pittsburgh Pirates don't leave? Okay, that was part one of my conversation with Ben Boma, network sports producer and sports management consultant. That last question was a tease on what we'll be talking about in part two, so be sure to take a listen to episode 13. And here's an additional clip from our conversation. You know, I've, I've had the fortune of working with some amazing women over the last 15 years from 
you know, Bonnie Bernstein, who was, was an amazing, you know, bulldog reporter and Andrea Kramer. And, um, you know, just there are women who work as hard, if not harder. You know, I have to speak at Penn State in a couple of weeks. It's telling the girls, like, look, you'll never live in a better time for opportunities for you, but you're still going to have to work harder than the men. It just, it's the reality of it. It's not fair. I'll be honest with you, it's just not fair, but it's the reality of, but with the number of opportunities that are there combined with your hard work, the, the sky's the limit. So I've been very, very fortunate to see that in some of these, these amazing women that I've worked with because they had trailblaze. I mean, Hannah Storm, Andrew Kramer, you know, they, they did the true trailblazing. And so I hope a lot of these women take advantage of, of their hard work. Once again, that is episode 13, part two of my conversation with Ben Boma. And just to mention about some upcoming episodes, I talk with some more amazing women in sports, including Heather Novickis, an Olympic, Paralympic, and endurance athlete agent with the Human Interest Group. We'll talk about what she does for her clients, as well as Mary-Kate Shea, Senior Director of Marketing and Sponsorship with John Hancock, who has the exciting responsibility of selecting the elite distance runners for the Boston Marathon, which takes place in a few weeks. If you have any suggestions on what you'd like to know more about in sports, drop me a line at sportsinthemaking.com or contact me on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you have any questions, I'd love to include them in a future episode with your name. Wherever you listen to this podcast, I'd appreciate it if you like it, share it, and leave positive reviews on your social media channels. Also, be sure to subscribe to Sports in the Making so you don't miss out on more episodes. You can also catch up on previous episodes as well. I'm your host, Don Cardona. Thank you for listening to Sports in the Making. Thank you.